verses 12 through 17. Uh, we are currently considering the letters to the seven churches that are found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Uh, the last couple of weeks we've considered the letter to the church in Ephesus, the letter to the church in Smyrna, Today we move to the third letter, the letter to the church in Pergamum. Letter to the church in Pergamum. So uh, let's now hear God's uh, inerrant word, remembering even as he addresses the church in Pergamum, he is addressing the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages. Might we have be those who have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's hear God's word. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This ends this reading in God's uh, holy word. Let's once again see together the face of God in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God in heaven, uh, we thank you for your inerrant word. Uh, that as it were, cuts through all the noise of the age and day in which we live. and gives to us a sure word from the God of heaven, the one who has both created us and redeemed us. Yet, O oh Lord, we do confess our own slowness to hear the words of God, even while our ears are often wide open to the messages of the world. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears this day to hear your holy word and to live by it, to put it into practice. O oh Holy Spirit, come among us now, uh, we pray. Bless us. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our King and Lord, the only mediator between God and man. Amen. There are two primary ways in which Satan attacks the church. Well, the first of those ways is that he often attacks from without, by means of a persecution. Whether it takes the form of a ridicule, mockery, and slander, or an actual physical threat against Christians, Satan often 
uh, comes at the church of Jesus Christ from without. There's also a second way in which Satan often attacks the church, and that is that he attacks the church from within. That is, through the subtle temptation of false teaching and of worldly compromise. Now, often when we think of Satan's attack, we think in that first category, and Satan often does use those means of attacking the church from without. However, I would suggest that it is often in the second way, this more subtle way of attacking the church from within, that there are, as it were, more victims claimed. This is often Satan's more effective means of attack. You can think about it in our uh, own day uh, and age. Uh, The kind of uh, damaging effects that false teaching and worldly compromise have had within the church of Jesus Christ. Think, for example, of the Roman Catholic Church, which now uh, for centuries has taught uh, false uh, false teaching uh, through doctrinal error and syncretism has led many astray. Or you can think about uh, the liberal, progressive churches in our day through uh, their kind of anti-supernaturalism, trying to uh, uh, strip, as it were, the Bible of uh, the supernatural elements, of the miracles of Christ's uh, atoning death, of his resurrection from the dead, and so forth. And through that false teaching, many have been led astray. Or you can think about even the the consumerism and the moral indifference of much of the Western church. And again, we see that more subtle form of temptation. Well, Satan has always been active against the church. We saw that uh, last week when we read of the church in uh, Smyrna, uh, how uh, the people uh, there were slandered by the Jews who were but the synagogue of Satan, and how the devil was about to throw some of them in prison. Satan was on the attack. So it is today, we read in this church in Pergamum, that there we read that they dwell where Satan's throne is. They live in the place where Satan is especially active, and he is going to seek to pull his church away through that more second form of subtle temptation by uh, false teaching, and especially by uh, a kind of worldly uh, compromise. So that's what I want us to consider today, this church in Pergamum, and to see uh, what their condition is, the way that Satan is attacking them, and uh, the kind of measures that Christ the King calls them to take. We're going to have four points in today's sermon. First of all, we're going to see how the Lord Jesus commends them for holding fast amidst persecution. Secondly, we're going to see how the Lord Jesus condemns them for worldly compromise. Thirdly, how the Lord Jesus commands them to repent. And lastly, how the Lord Jesus rewards them with a heaven, or excuse me, promises them a heavenly reward. So he commends them for holding fast amidst persecution. He condemns them for their worldly compromise. He commends them, or excuse me, he he commands them uh, to repent. And then lastly, he promises them a heavenly reward. Let's look at these four things in turn. First of all, 
uh, the Lord Jesus commends the church in Pergamum for holding fast amidst persecution. The Lord Jesus here addresses the church in this particular city, ancient city of Pergamum. Well, what is it that we know about the city of Pergamum? Well, Pergamum uh, stood about 55 55 miles uh, further north and inland from the town that we considered last week, the city of Smyrna. Pergamum, like Ephesus and Smyrna, was a large and important city in Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey. In fact, in these first three letters, three of the most significant cities in Western Asia Minor are mentioned. Uh, This particular city of Pergamum was the provincial seat of the Roman governor. It was the capital city. It was a kind of administrative center. Loyalty to Rome dominated every part of city life. It was also a city of great learning. It actually housed a massive library of over 200,000 volumes. Think of it in the ancient world. Over 200,000 volumes. And in fact, the word parchment is actually derived from the name of Pergamum. Pergamum as well was a very religious city. Uh, It was the the first city in Asia Minor uh, to build a temple for the purpose of emperor worship. And by the time of this letter, the city also housed uh, several other temples that were dedicated uh, to the imperial cult. But other deities also were worshipped in the city. And so there were uh, 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 temples for Zeus, for Dionysus, and Athene. And each year, thousands of people uh, thronged to the city in hopes of being healed by Asclepius, uh, who was the Greek god of medicine and healing. This god was uh, represented by a a snake-entwined staff, and it remains a symbol of medicine uh, that you often see today. Well, that had its origin in the city, uh, this ancient city of of Pergamum. That's the city. And it was actually in this great ancient city that a small but notable Christian church uh, was was founded. Imagine, for just a moment, being a Christian uh, in that type of of environment. You know, often in New England, uh, we rightly think of the church as often small and uh, surrounded by kind of secular and uh, godless forces, uh, all around us, and that's true, but, but it's even more so for the city of Pergamum. I think to, to dwell in Pergamum would have been maybe even more similar to, in our day, uh, a Christian church that exists in a, in a large, uh, predominantly Muslim city, uh, where uh, that kind of religious devotion of Islam pervades every aspect of human life, and you feel threatened constantly uh, in that kind of environment. Well, I think that's what was going on here in, uh, in Pergamum. Uh, there would have been intense social pressure to conform. Every business function, every social function would have involved uh, pagan religious uh, practices. Every state-sponsored activity would have proclaimed that Caesar uh, was uh, Lord. It was a suffocating environment for the Christian believer. 
And I think this is why he says that this is where, verse 13, Satan's throne is. Or at the end of verse 13, where, where Satan dwells. Satan, that prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit working in the sons of disobedience, had a special influence captivating the hearts of, of the people who surrounded uh, these Christians uh, in Pergamum. And all of this meant that the church here had gone through a season of persecution, even to the point of death. Uh, in particular, one a Christian martyr is mentioned, Antipas. He was one who confessed Christ and held fast to Christ as Lord even up to the point of death. Now, we don't know anything about this man other than his mention here in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 2. But what a glorious witness this was. Here was a Christian who refused, even at the cost of his own life, uh, to deny the name of Jesus Christ. He remained steadfast in the midst of a, a wicked pagan culture. And so what an encouragement Jesus' words must have been to these uh, suffering Christians. Jesus says to them, as he said last week as well, I know, I know where you dwell. Jesus knows the particular pressures and the discouragements they faced. And the same thing can be said of you and of me. You know, he knows, Jesus knows all of the particular pressures and discouragements you face. You know, your brothers and sisters of Christ might not know all of the things that you face. Even your own family or your spouse might not know all of the pressures that you uh, face. But the Lord Jesus Christ knows. He knows some of the pressures and difficulties of living with an unbelieving spouse. Or the pressures that perhaps you face at your job or at your school to compromise. He knows the difficulties uh, that you experience. But the point is that when you stand fast, as this church at Pergamum did, Christ also sees and he knows that as well. And what an encouragement uh, that is, maybe nobody else sees you trying to remain faithful. No one else knows of your efforts to be a faithful parent. No one else knows of all of your labors for the church. Or of your effort in witnessing to an unbelieving friend. No one else sees the times that you've resisted uh, the temptation to compromise. But the point is, is that Christ sees. He knows he knows it all, and he commends you, even as he did uh, the church in Pergamum. So let us uh, labor, as it were, for Christ's commendation, the knowledge that he does see. He knows uh, where we live. Uh, he, as it were, even ordains those things. Uh, for our good, every bit of it is from the Lord. And let us seek to remain faithful to this Christ. And so that's the commendation which they uh, received, being faithful amidst persecution. But now, secondly, though, there is a word of condemnation, condemnation 
for their worldly uh, compromise. We see this in verses 14 and 15. The Lord Jesus goes on to say, I do have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality. And so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This church which had uh, so faithfully withstood uh, Satan's attack, the external pressure of persecution, was now being done in uh, by another form of Satan's attack, a more subtle form of compromise uh, that had developed within certain segments of the church. Uh, The church here uh, tolerated in their midst uh, some who held, here it says, the doctrine of Balaam. Some of your heads are spinning for a moment. Balaam, Balaam. Yes, I've heard of Balaam. Who was he again? What's going on here? Well, let me just refresh uh, your memories, okay? We find Balaam in the book of Numbers. Uh, Balaam was a, a prophet, a false prophet who actually desired, he was hired, he was a prophet for hire, essentially. Uh, He was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse the Israelites who were encamped against Moab in the plains of Moab. Okay, So Balak wants to curse them. Balaam himself has been hired to curse them. However, uh, you may recall that despite his best efforts, and even... His donkey (laughs) speaking to him at one point. Okay, he cannot bring cursing upon the people of Israel, but only speak blessing uh, to them. It's only the word that the Spirit actually gives him to speak. What an interesting uh, incident. But but the point of the story doesn't end there. It's actually that Balaam, if if you read further in the story, doesn't give up. Okay, in his sinister designs. But instead, this wicked and greedy man gives the king some advice. He says, well, if I can't curse the Israelites, then what we could do is we could tempt them. Okay? We can tempt them to uh, sexual immorality and to a, a kind of idolatrous worship. And when they do that, then God's curse is going to fall upon them. And so, uh, Balaam then leads the people of Israel uh, to commit sexual immorality at a place called Baal Peor, and then to sacrifice to Moab's uh, idols. And that name of Baal Peor um, becomes a kind of proverbial expression throughout the Old Testament for spiritual declension. It, It worked. The people of Israel are led away suddenly to that temptation. Okay, they sin grievously against the Lord. And that's what's being referred to when it talks here about Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block. It's, the word for stumbling block is that of a trap uh, before the people of, of Israel. Balak uh, led the people of God then to compromise their moral integrity and their distinctiveness as the people of God and to fall into the sins of the nations around them. And the point is, is that that is what is happening as well at the, in the church at Pergamum. 
Okay, it's a kind of subtle temptation, a kind of trap in which the church was being led to adopt the practices of the world around them. So it would have gone something like this, okay? Christians would have been invited to a kind of social function, a, a feast perhaps, okay? The feasts, the social functions of Pergamum all involved a religious aspect. Okay, there was a sacrifice that was given to idols, and then together they would eat of that sacrifice and join in this uh, pagan celebration. Maybe the church began thinking, you know, we, maybe we shouldn't be so strict. It's not that big of a deal. We're just trying to engage the world around us. We'll participate. No, I know in my heart that this isn't a, a big deal. There's no, I'm not going to worship him in my heart, but nonetheless, I'll participate in all the outward activities of this kind of... Uh, uh, religious worship in, in Pergamum. And they perhaps tried to justify it in that way. Well, what were they doing? They were compromising their exclusive loyalty to Jesus Christ. Okay, They were eating food sacrificed uh, to idols. And similarly there, it speaks of a, of a sexual immorality. Uh, sexual immorality was a very uh, common part of uh, pagan worship. Uh, in the first uh, century. And perhaps here also, this was an area where Christians began to, uh, to compromise. They think, is it really that big of a deal? So they began to engage uh, in, uh, in, in these things. And what was happening, but they were compromising. They were compromising with their surrounding culture, and the church was losing uh, some of their uh, distinctiveness in the city of Pergamum. Well, it goes on to say, uh, not only were they following the teaching of Balaam, but they also had some who were uh, uh, practicing the, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, you'll remember, actually, we, we spoke of the, at the church at Ephesus, we spoke of the Nicolaitans. Okay, we, we don't know much about them, but it appears that the Nicolaitans were um, uh, those who were uh, what we might call libertines or antinomians. That is, uh, they basically said, well, since we're saved by the grace of God, we can really live however we like. Uh, they may have been Gnostics as well, which would have downplayed the importance of the body uh, and said, well, it's really our spirits that matter. So what we do with our bodies, uh, we can eat, drink, live, indulge in pleasure. None of that affects our standing uh, with God. And so through this teaching of the Nicolaitans too, it seemed that uh, the church, again, began to engage in certain worldly practices of the people uh, around them. Well, all of this, friends, contains a very stark warning to the church, not just in the first century, but to the church of Jesus Christ today. The Lord Jesus, who delivered these words to the church in Pergamum, continues to deliver these words to the church of Jesus Christ today when he says to us, Dear friends, beware of a compromise with the world. Our God is a God of holiness. God's people are to live lives that are distinct from the world around us. 
we are called to be separate from the world. Now, by that, it doesn't mean that we're simply to kind of occupy a sort of isolationism, a, a holy huddle where we never interact with unbelievers. No, we're called to be salt and light in the world in which we live, but we're called to be that salt and light as we live differently in the world in which we live. We are to be different from those who live their lives without God. And above all, we are to pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord. We are saved, but saved unto a life that is wholly consecrated to God in every part. 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Or James 4.4. 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity against God? Or you can think of Ephesians chapter 5, where the Lord Jesus tells us why he died for his church. Verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why, Jesus, did you die for your church? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It's so that we would be different from the world around us. Or Titus, uh, Titus chapter uh, 2, uh, that, end, uh, that ending part of that, that chapter also gives us a, a, a key word. For the grace of God, we're told, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see what the point is? Jesus himself says, that to be a Christian means that your entire life is to be impacted by your relationship to Jesus Christ. And it is a lie of the devil that says, oh yes, you can be a Christian, but at the same time you can live in sexual immorality out of God's design, which is that sexual relations are to be between a husband and a wife who are married one to another. It is a lie of the devil that says that you can be a Christian, yes, but at the same time you can use your mouth to curse and to lie and to tell little fibs and, 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 to, and to use the Lord's name in vain. Okay? Or it's a lie of the devil that says, well, you can uh, be a, a, a Christian, you can say that you're a Christian, but yet, but yet you can have, well you can have a greater zeal for, uh, uh, for the things of this world, perhaps for making money, perhaps a greater zeal for your favorite sports team, for certain forms of entertainment, a greater zeal for those things and for the kingdom of God and your commitment to him. It's a lie of the devil that says, well, yeah, you can be a Christian, it's fine, and never come to church or skip it when it's not convenient. 
It's a lie of the devil that says you can be a Christian and yet live like the world. You can't. To be a Christian means that Jesus Christ is Lord over my life. Now, are we going to continue to fall into sin? Yes. But what do we do? We repent of that sin. And we desire to turn again to Him and say, Lord, I want You to take possession of all of me. It's a call to holiness. Many of our Dutch brothers and sisters uh, call it uh, the antithesis or antithetical living. It's simply the idea that at the most basic points of living, the Christian's life is to be antithetical or fundamentally different than that of the world around us. We ought not to be captivated by the materialism, by the worldly ambition, by the sexual indulgence of the world around us. But rather, we need to have our lives shaped and directed by Jesus Christ. That's what this is teaching. And it was a strong enough thing that Jesus says to the church of Pergamum, I have this against you. And simply asked, does he have that against us as well? Are there, are, are, is this an area that needs to be addressed in your own life? How are you doing? Maybe compared, some of you that have been Christians for a time, compared to five years ago, ten years ago. Are there sins in your life that you tolerate now that you used not to tolerate? Where do your energies, where is your time, where does your commitment chiefly lie? Is it to the church, to the kingdom of God? Or is it to this world? What are the things that give you the greatest delight? Is it the advance of Christ's kingdom? Is it the glory of God? Does that, is that what gives you greater delight than money or success? Which is it? Might we be those who are uh, committed uh, to Jesus Christ? Might we, our homes, might our lives be marked, first of all, by a commitment to Him. Beware the spirit of worldly compromise. To follow Jesus Christ is to be committed to a life of holiness with Him as Lord. And so that's His condemnation. He, he condemns their worldly compromise. Thirdly, now, I want us to see that He commands them to repent. He commands them to repent. He says in verse 16, Therefore, repent. And if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He calls this the entire church to repent of this spirit of, of, of licentiousness that had grown up in segments of, of the church. And the call is directed to the whole church here. Now it appears that only some of them had been effect, infected with this doctrine, but the call is to the whole church because the whole church had tolerated this immorality in their midst. The church had been lax in discipline. They, they, had, they had said it's okay for people to be expressing these ideas to be practicing in this way within, within the church. And friends, it's a, 
It's a warning to the church of Jesus Christ today of the importance of practicing discipline in the church. That within the church of Jesus Christ, God's people are to be called to holy living and are to be held to account. And when they aren't, okay, God's people need to be confronted with that. And even if after being confronted, people still over a period of time refuse to repent, still want to be called a Christian, but refuse to repent, the church is to practice discipline. Barring a person from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or even excommunicating a person. It's a practice of of discipline. And and the point is that this is something that Christ himself calls the church uh, to do. Our own book of church order of the PCA tells us that discipline within the church, the exercise of discipline is highly important and necessary. That in its proper usage, discipline maintains three things. First of all, it maintains the glory of God. Secondly, the purity of his church. And thirdly, the keeping and reclaiming of disobedient sinners. That in the church of Jesus Christ, there is to be a high standard of morality and of teaching that is maintained. Because in maintaining these things, God is glorified, error is kept from spreading. And dear friends, when sin is tolerated within the church, unrepentant sin, for a period of time, okay, it impacts like a bacteria, goes through the church of Jesus Christ, and it impacts the spiritual level of the entire church. And dear friends, the exercise of discipline is important too because it calls sinners to repentance and to turn back uh, to the Lord. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. You know, in our day and age, just the whole idea of of discipline is is not considered a tasteful thing. People say it's it's unloving. Uh, They don't want the church to be filled with so-called heresy hunters or... uh, uh, people that are um, uh, uh, zealot, or people that are always looking for what, what's wrong, what things that are being taught that's wrong, ways that people are living that are wrong. And dear friends, there is to be a. Um, we need to look to ourselves first. We need to bear with one another in love. Yes, we do. But dear friends, the proper exercise of discipline in the church is not an unloving thing. It is a wonderful thing, and it's what Christ Himself calls us. Uh, to do. We are called to this kind of watchfulness over the doctrine and over the life of people within the church of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. And the Lord Jesus says, if you don't repent of this, in other words, if this persists within the church, I myself, he says, am going to come soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. We don't know exactly what he's talking about here. If he's going to come in some kind of temporal judgment upon the church, uh, I don't know, perhaps. Okay? But I think ultimately, it's describing Christ as the one who, who uh, ultimately judges uh, the church. And he is going to come ultimately uh, in judgment. So he's saying to them, you who live in the midst of Pergamum, 
you who have been persecuted, don't fear ultimately what the Romans with their sword can do to you. Their little sword is like a butter knife compared to the sword of judgment of Almighty God. He is the one who stands over His church in judgment. And we need this perspective. When we feel the pressure to give in, to conform to the world, to get along, as it were, with a little compromise, we need to remember that it is the Lord Jesus ultimately who stands over His church in judgment. And He commands them to repent. But now fourth and finally, He then promises them a heavenly reward. He promises them a heavenly reward. Not only, and this is important, because not only does Christ Jesus send a warning to his church to drive them to repent, to practice discipline, to cast out this false teaching within the church, but he also holds out the sweetness of a reward for those that persist in following him without compromise amidst the ungodly world. And rewards like this, promises like this, are exceedingly sweet uh, to the true believer. And there's three elements to the promise that is given in verse 17. He says, first of all, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Hidden manna. You may recall... Uh, the, the clear Old Testament reference here that God gave to the wandering Israelites in the wilderness manna. And what was that manna? It was God's provision for their need. Well, in John chapter 6 and verse 48, Jesus picks up on that same imagery when he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. And so Jesus makes it clear there that he is the manna. And that gift of manna represents ultimately the gift of perfect and consummate fellowship with him. And the manna, I think, is described here as hidden in the sense that we don't now know, and in fact we won't know until heaven itself the real richness of this fellowship. And so you and I are to live now by faith in expectation of the glories of the fellowship that will yet be ours uh, in heaven. What words of comfort this must have been to these Christians. These Christians who were called to exclude themselves from the pagan festivals in the city of Pergamum. Jesus says, remain faithful and you will be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. There's a fellowship. There's an acceptance that is far sweeter yet. Hidden manna. But their second element in this promise is that of a white stone. He says, I will give him a white stone. Now, uh, nobody knows exactly what this means. Uh, commentators uh, give a variety of good options, I think, of what this white stone could mean. Let me uh, just mention two of them that I think are, are real possibilities. Uh, first, that stones were used for delivering verdicts in the courtroom in the first century, and so a jury would have a, a white stone for innocent, a black stone uh, for guilty. So perhaps he's referring to that. You get the white stone. 
you have been declared, as it were, in the courtroom of heaven, innocent in my sight. But the second possibility is that in the ancient world, stones were used as uh, kind of invitations or tickets of admission. And so a white stone, in that sense, may represent a sinner's welcome into heaven. Well, whether it's one of these two things or something else, either way, this white stone would have represented a tremendous encouragement, would have been a tremendous encouragement and comfort to the Christians in Pergamum. Because he is saying to them, however much you are under the threat of the sword, however much you have been rejected and despised by society around you, however much you feel pressured by them, know this, that if you remain faithful to Jesus Christ, you are in his sight, not only welcome, but ex- not only accepted, but welcomed and received as a child in his sight. You are, have an entrance of, ad- of admission into heaven itself. You, you being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, have all that you need to be received unto everlasting uh, life. What a wonderful a message this is. So to, to, to conquer means not only to be given hidden manna and a white stone, but now thirdly, it's then to receive a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, what is this new name? Well, in the ancient world, again, a name was something of great significance. It wasn't used merely for identification, but it was uh, really descriptive of a person's character. And so to know somebody's name was not simply to know who they were, but rather it was to enter into intimate fellowship with that person, to share in their life. And so the promise here of a new name is full of meaning. Okay? We don't know what that name is going to be, so to speak, but the idea is is that we will have In glory, a new identity is fully redeemed, sinless creatures in heaven. And that the Lord is going to know that name and, as it were, enter into intimate fellowship with his people who bear that name. The new name, then, is kind of a a mark of genuine membership in the community of the redeemed. Again, what a word this was for these in Pergamum. Though you may be excluded from citizenship in Rome... You have a citizenship that is far greater. Yours is in heaven. And though you remain, as it were, distant and separate from uh, the society around you, you are known intimately and loved by your heavenly uh, Father. You will rule with Jesus in heaven. What a promise this is. What a message for you and for me living in our own Pergamum that we live in today. Will we be those who, in our own day, resist worldly compromise? The Lord knows the situation in which you're in. He knows exactly the circumstances of your life, and He calls you to be faithful to Him. To be faithful in the pursuit of holiness, in the pursuit of godly living. To say no to sin, yes to righteousness. To seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. To follow Jesus Christ. All of its particulars. Are there particular areas of your life that need to change? 
the way that you use your mouth, the way that you relate to your boyfriend or your girlfriend, the, the concerns that are driving your life. It may be that there needs to be a renewed commitment to reading God's Word, to praying a renewed commitment to worshiping God in your family and to being present when God's people gather as a corporate body? Are there ways in which you need to say no to the world around you, yes to Jesus Christ? It's a call to resist compromise, the little compromises, the subtle temptations that have come into your life. He calls you, resist these things and stay faithful to me, for when you do, look at the glories that yet await the one who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Let us keep our eyes fixed on those glories and seek to be faithful to Him in the Pergamum of our day. Let's pray uh, together. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank You for this, Your call to the church, Your inerrant Word. Lord, we pray for the grace to hear the things which You have to say to the church today and to follow You Lord, we do pray that we would be committed to lives of holiness, of consecrated living. Help us to avoid worldliness, patterns of life that we see around us. Instead, to seek first your kingdom above all else, and by your grace to seek to be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, give us grace to see particular areas in our own lives where worldliness has set in. Grant, O Lord, the grace to say no to those things and to follow you first of all. And we thank you, we bless you, we praise you for the reward of your grace that is set out for us. O Lord, might we be those who endure to the end, who conquer in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray all of this 